Our second reading is from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of, the parched, of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. 
Then David took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The word of the Lord. Good storytelling always starts at the beginning. And at the very beginning of this one movie, you see as the credits, the opening credits disappear, you get a scene of stars and then planets and then all of a sudden ships come into view. One little ship is escaping a larger ship, but the larger ship just keeps going on and on and on. It is a powerful ship. A couple scenes later, you get a hallway and an ominous creature, a man, a thing dressed in black, evil, incarnate, power and evil. A few scenes later, you jump to a deserted planet and you find a farm boy looking out at two planets, two suns, possibly the ones that we saw at the beginning. And he has this look on his face of teenage angst and sorrow, longing for something more in his life. But here he is, a farmer on his uncle's land in the middle of nowhere. And right from the beginning of the 1977 Star Wars, we wonder, who is this boy? What's up with him? What's going to happen? And how is he going to interact with this evil, this evil character and this power that's out there? We're drawn in. And that's what good story does. You see, from Charles Dickens to the storytelling of Bob Dylan, from the Brothers Grimm to the Coen Brothers, in different medium and forms, you find that story has power. It has the power to draw us in because we identify with characters. We remember what happened in the story. And that's because our lives, our lives are fundamentally stories. Your life is not a series of definitions or facts. It is not the sum of an equation. It is stories that are real stories that make up you and your future and your past and everything about you. The story of David and Goliath is one of the most masterful stories ever told. 
It's a retelling of the history of the people of God in one particular episode. But it's also not just a story retelling history, it's also thick with theology. Because it's retelling God's saving act, how he chose an anointed one to defeat an enemy and deliver his people. So the story begins, as all stories do, in Act 1. In Act 1, we get the evil one, the enemy. It's this Philistine giant. So the story, as was just read for us, is that there is two armies, the army of the Philistines and the army of the Israelites, and they are gathered together in one particular valley. King Saul is the king of Israel, and a Philistine giant comes out. We don't know how tall he was, somewhere between seven and nine feet tall, but the average Israelite would have been about 5'1". So anything above six feet means giant. So the giant comes out and he threatens Israel and he makes this idea, he he proposes this idea that was not normal for the Israelites but did happen in the ancient world which was representative combat. And he makes this suggestion, I tell you what, you bring your best champion out to fight me and I'll fight him and whoever wins the battle, that one, that one will be the winner and they will then take over the lands and the people of the others. So we will conquer you and you will be our slaves. Your wives and children and land will be ours. So how about it? You guys want to come out? Now the problem was King Saul was actually the biggest Israelite, and he wanted nothing to do with this. (laughs) But every day the, the Philistine came out, and this is what happened. It says in verse 10, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. But when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So let's stop right there for just a moment and ask this question. How do we interpret, how do we read and understand an Old Testament narrative like this? A couple of quick things to hold us back. The first is this, the natural reading of David and Goliath in any children's Bible, well, nearly any children's Bible, is a moralizing tale. It's to say, you read David and Goliath and say, you too should have courage to overcome the giants in your life. But when we moralize, we're jumping too quickly to what is not primary in the text. We're trying to assume that every passage of the Bible is there to give us a moral lesson, like the three little pigs or Goldilocks or some other fairy tale. But that's not the intention of Scripture, so we shouldn't jump there right away. Another thing to be careful of, especially in these battle scenes in ancient Israel, is to recognize that there is a distinct calling and unique place that ancient Israel had in God's history. And not to make the confusion, at least I'm not comfortable making the confusion, of ancient Israel and the United States. Or jumping too quickly in that sort of way. Our country is a great country, but it is not God's chosen nation in the same way that Israel was for a unique period and place. Because I know for certain we are not called to act in the exact same way, to find every one of our enemies and cut off their heads. It's a dangerous thing to step into. And we need to see that when God is acting in history, in calling the people of Israel, it is a part of a wider plan to reveal his saving acts of choosing people, that he loves people, he loves the creation, he works in history just as he wants to work in your life. But even as he's working in Israel, it's pointing to what he does in Jesus Christ, bringing a greater salvation 
for an even wider audience of people, all of creation. So, a couple of things not to do, but really when I'm looking at any passage of Scripture, and especially the Old Testament, there's some simple questions you can ask. The first is function, function. Why was this passage, why was this episode included? It's not primarily about you having courage, but really it's confirming David as the Lord's anointed. In First and Second Samuel, this is the one that says David is God's chosen one. And it's pointing to an even greater anointed one to come. Second question after function is God. What does this passage tell me about the nature and character of God? Who is this God that reveals himself in this way? And the third question is the gospel question. How does this passage point me to Christ and what Jesus has done for us? And the reason why I know we can go there is because Jesus himself does. On the road to Emmaus in Luke, Jesus explains how all of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets and everything pointed to him. And the way Paul interprets the Old Testament and quotes it in order to reveal Jesus as the Savior. So what is the function? How does it reveal God? How does it point to Christ? Those are the sorts of questions we ask. So back to our passage. In verse 16, we get, For 40 days the Philistine, the giant Goliath, came forward and took his stand morning and evening. For 40 days, Goliath would come out in the morning, come out in the evening, and say, I defy you. Send out your champion. Like Vader standing there saying, who can oppose me? So then Act 2 arrives. And in Act 2, the anointed one arrives. And he sees things very differently. So what's happening is the camp of Israel is out there for day in, day out. And three of the oldest brothers of David are out at the battle lines. Jesse, the father of David, says, hey, go see how your brothers are doing. Bring some bread and cheese so they have some food and also give some to their commanders. So David goes out there with all this bread and this cheese. And as soon as he gets there, he sees everything going on. He drops all of his bread and cheese with the baggage keeper. And he heads out to the battle lines right at the point when the Philistine is about to speak. The Philistine comes out and says, I defy you. Who will fight against me? David turns to the men near him in verse 26. And he says, What shall be done with the, for the man who kills this Philistine who takes away the reproach and takes away the reproach from Israel? And who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You know, at first he sounds pretty brash, but if you look underneath what he's saying, David is indignant that somebody would defy and dishonor the name of God. That's what he's concerned about. His brothers think he's a bit crazy and brash, but he stays where he is, holding firm to this line. Who is defying God? This is not okay. I will fight that guy. So they bring him to Saul, the king, and Saul looks at him and says, You? You're just a kid. I'm the biggest man in Israel, and I'm not going to fight that guy. But David has a line of argument with Saul, and we see this in verse 36 and 37. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. 
See, David, as a shepherd, had to deal with wild animals, a bear and a lion. And he had fought them and killed them. And this is his argument. I have fought wild beasts and killed them. This Philistine, because he is uncircumcised and denies God, is basically no better than a wild beast. And the Lord will deliver him into my hands as well. Saul says, good enough for me. Why don't you go? So he quickly decides, I know, I'll get a little bit of credit for this, and I'll help this guy out. I'll give him my armor and my weapons. But Saul is a, is a big man. David is still a teenager, and he's also probably average height and size. So the, the armor looks silly on him. The weapons are too big. He, what, he doesn't wear them. Instead, he goes out to the creek and picks up five stones, probably about the size of a tennis ball, to use in his sling. Pretty heavy. But what is he going to do battling this giant? But he's willing to go out and battle him. So the question that I think I want us to see first is what does David see that the men and that Saul don't see? Last week we looked at how God sees the heart and we look at externals. I think this passage is setting us up to see what the men see and what David sees are very different things even though they're both looking supposedly at the same scene. In verse 24 we read what the men of Israel, the soldiers do. All the men of Israel when they saw the man, Goliath, fled from him and were very much afraid. So the men of Israel, these soldiers, they see a giant, a warrior, a man with massive weapons. His spear had a 15-pound head. And with great armor, his chainmail shirt weighed 125 pounds. And they thought, I can't defeat this guy. For them, their reality was their five senses. I can see he's big, I'm not, his weapons are strong, mine aren't. That was their reality. And their feelings. I feel like I want to live. I'm not going to go fight that guy. They were dismayed and greatly afraid and feared for their own life. So is David crazy? I think based on what he says here, David has spent years cultivating an intimacy with God. As a shepherd out there alone, and we see this in the Psalms of David, go read Psalm 23. It's written from somebody who had spent time out in the field talking to God, understanding the nature of God. He had an intimate relationship with God the Father. And his trust in God was based on the past acts of God. He had read about how God had delivered Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, how he had provided for them in the wilderness, how he had given a son to Abraham in his old age. He knew those past acts, and he knew the promises of God that he would call a people and deliver them and provide for them, and he trusted in that. That God who had acted and who had promised who he knew intimately. The men can only see what their five senses can tell them and their feelings speak to them. But David is able to see the world, his own life, and even Goliath from God's perspective. And this is actually what Jesus does too. Think about what Jesus does. Zacchaeus was a hated man, a tax collector. Everybody wanted to get rid of Zacchaeus. They could only see an evil, cheating man. Jesus sees a desperate man. He sees a man in need of grace. 
He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today. We would look at the story of Jesus at the end, the passion narrative, and we would see enemies of Jesus who are crucifying him, evil people. Jesus looks at those same crucifiers from his father's perspective, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. We see the cross as an instrument of torture and death. Jesus, according to Hebrews 12, is able to endure the cross because he's looking past it to the joy that is set before him. He is seeing the heaven, the resurrection, the eternity, the reuniting with a father and the accomplishment of the cross. And he endures the cross, scorning its shame so that he can go and sit down at the right hand of the father. It's like he's looking past it, only able to fix his eyes on the father. David sees differently than the men. And the question is, do we, do we, do the nature and promises of God define my reality and affect my perspective? And usually they don't. Scene three comes along. David is now interacting with Goliath. Goliath starts off by mocking him. You're just a dog. Why are you out here trying to nip at my heels? I'm going to destroy you. And then he curses him in the name of his gods. David replies back in verse 45, look, you come with sword, spear, and javelin. I see them. I see your weapons. But I've got to let you know you're outmanned. I come in the name of Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Yes, you are physically bigger. Your weapons are superior by human accounts. But you're going to lose. Yahweh's on my side. Goliath is trusting in his experience, his size, his weapons. But David is trusting in God. God defines his reality and his hope regardless of the outcome. So David makes this bold declaration. God's going to deliver you into my hands. I am going to strike you down. I am going to cut off your head. I am going to then give all the bodies of the Philistines to the beasts of the earth so that the whole earth will know the God of Israel. You see, the Lord saves not with spear, not with sword. The battle is the Lord's. What's amazing here is David's aim is not his own honor and glory. He doesn't go out to fight the Philistine thinking, hey, then I'll be famous. Then everyone will know who I am. Then I'll be the greatest. I'll be king. He's missional. He wants people to know God. He wants to spread the honor and name of God. In Act 3, the battle begins. Goliath is walking forward. David runs. He slings the stone. The stone hits the forehead of Goliath, who drops to the ground. David doesn't have a sword, so he runs and takes Goliath's own sword, cuts off his head. When the Philistines recognize what happens, they start fleeing. The Israelites pounce on them and chase them back to their land, killing off many of them. And then, in an odd little verse that we often overlook. David does something really strange. Verse 54. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem 
Your favorite verse in the Bible, right? (laughs) So what's he doing? At the time, Jerusalem was controlled by the Jebusites. It was a mountainous city. It was hard to penetrate. David goes, takes the head of the giant Goliath, and he doesn't actually take it into Jerusalem because he can't get in. It's controlled by the Jebusites. Instead, what does he probably do? He probably either sets it up on a stick or tosses it near enough for them to see, just outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And it's a warning. I'm coming for this city. This city is the city of God, and it will be the place where God sets up his temple and his kingdom, and God is going to do great work in this city. Be warned. What happened to this giant is going to happen to you. You better repent and get out now. He was trusting in the promises of God and seeing a day a thousand years later when in that very same city, possibly in the very same place, God was doing something again. A thousand years after David, the anointed one battles the enemy, the evil one. For several years, he battles the evil one in the desert while he's being tempted, calming the wind and the waves, healing the blind and the lame and the possessed. And at each point, Jesus, the anointed one, wins. But on a particular day, a Friday, outside of the walls of Jerusalem, in a place called Golgotha, which was known as the place of the skull. Some people say it was because it looked like a skull. Other scholars suggest there might be other connections tied to a certain skull that was tossed there a thousand years earlier. Now a trash heap. The anointed one, the king of the Jews, is mocked and beaten and crucified. And it looks like he's lost the battle. The enemy, the defier of Yahweh, thinks he has defeated God. He's used all the weapons in his arsenal, political power, betraying friends, ruthless whip, torturous nails. He thinks he's won. This little runt is all you're going to send at me, God? Ha! I've got him. But of course, as he's dying, Jesus says, it is finished. And in a scene portrayed by Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, right after Jesus breathes his last, it cuts to Lucifer in an empty desert, screaming bloody murder. Satan thinks he's won until it is finished. And then he realizes, oh no, what have I done? He had bit the anointed one's heel, and the anointed one had crushed his head. The cross and the resurrection accomplished the total defeat of Satan and sin and death. And in our lives, these enemies may look powerful, but the game's over. All the enemies of God have been defeated. Colossians puts it this way. Paul in Colossians says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you and I were like the Philistine, 
but God has made us alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses, canceling the record of death that stood against us. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross, and disarmed the rulers and authorities, the true enemies, and put them to shame by triumphing over them in him. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about another enemy, death, and says, where is your victory, death? Where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in our communion liturgy that we've been using lately, it's an ancient liturgy that dates back to the 2nd century or the 3rd century. The wording goes, on the cross he offered himself once for all as our Redeemer, that by his suffering and death we might be saved, and by his resurrection he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan underfoot. We now live from a different perspective, a different viewpoint, from the victory of the risen Christ and the sovereignty of God over all of history. So, when we read David and Goliath, it's not, can we be brave enough like David to confront the giants in our life? It's how can we respond to, interpret, and approach all of life from the perspective of Easter and the empty tomb? And I want this to come into play as we think about, in particular, cultural change and political division. You know, for those of you who are of a certain age, those of us who are of a certain age, the cultural change that has happened over the past 30 or 40 years seems incredibly fast. Those of you of a younger age, let me tell you, it has actually happened really fast. Sociologists will tell you, cultural changes happen at such a rapid pace, it's never been matched before cultural, political, social change at incredibly rapid pace. How do I know it's happened that fast? Let me show a picture. These are confused kids. Those of you who were born after 2000, do you know what it is that they're looking at? For those of you in a, of a certain age, this is called a Sony Walkman. In 1979, Sony came out with a radical product, the Sony Walkman. It enabled a person to walk around and listen to their own music. By 19, the late 1980s, this instrument was ubiquitous. Anyone that was cool and an individual and a teenager had one of these. It, it remained so for another 10 years. By the late 90s, it was being phased out, and if you were born after 2000, you've never seen one of these, except in a broken drawer in your parents' house. You can go and find the YouTube clip on kids reacting to Walkman. They had no idea what it was, how it worked. Even when they had it explained to them, they couldn't figure out how to make it work. And then they were aghast that this is all that people had. 20 years ago, this was the business. This rocked. And now, you can recycle it. The speed of change causes many people fear and anxiety and uncertainty, feeling overwhelmed, even depressed. And the problem is we can get into an either-or situation. Either we need to save this nation or we're all done for. And many Christians, I think, overreact with a desire to hide, like in a cave for the next couple decades. Hope to escape, maybe God will get us out of here quickly. Or we react with vitriol and anger. When we do any of these things, we are failing to let the cross 
and the resurrection reform and reshape us? How do we review all of life from the perspective of the cross and resurrection? On one level, it's really simple. You need to know God, know his word, and know the gospel. When you do, when you know God's word, God's gospel, and God himself, when it becomes your primary authority, it has the amazing effect of challenging both conservatives and liberals. You see, the gospel challenges many conservative points of view in areas of political identity. But the word of God challenges many liberals from the perspective of cultural change. If God is truly your God, then his word and his gospel should be affecting everything. Your politics, your view on culture, how you approach life. Secondly, why am I not afraid in the midst of cultural change and political division? I'm not afraid because of the three C's. Well, I just came up with the three C's. They're not really officially the three C's, but one is Caesar. What do I mean by this? Let's say if you're a Christian in this culture and you're getting anxious about the direction the culture is going, it's becoming more contentious, harder to be a Christian. We might even one day not be able to worship in a school building. What if it actually does get more contentious? Harder. Harder than what? Harder than it was for Paul or Jesus in the first century when there were Caesars who thought they were God and executed people because they disagreed with them? And yet during that period is when the gospel went forth, when people came to know Jesus Christ, when the name of Jesus was lifted up and it infectiously took over the world. Caesars should not scare us. And the reason they should not scare us is because of the second C, the cross. If we really do trust in the cross, we know that no sword or spear or president or king can save us. And that the true salvation is already mine in Christ. What God has given me in Jesus Christ, no man can take away. No matter what happens in this world, I have Christ. So that with Paul, I can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. All my hope is set on him and him alone. And when I do that, there's no fear. And the third is kingdom. Third C. God reigns and is sovereign. His kingdom will endure. Culture may decline. At some point, the U.S. may not exist as you know it. But you know what? The church will. The big C church will. God's kingdom will endure. The gates of hell shall not prevail against them. Don't be afraid. What can Caesar do? and take away that the cross has not given you? What can decline that will not increase and carry on God's kingdom? If you want to respond with emotion, here's a couple. Weep. Jesus wept for Jerusalem. As he's walking in, he realizes they do not recognize him, and he weeps and grieves for them. So it's okay to grieve. 
but not fear and anger. And we need to respond to things going on in our culture with faith, with honesty, where we need to be honest, with engagement, where we're called to be engaged, and with compassion. Because ultimately, our desire is mission. It is the kingdom of God advancing. And God may place you in positions of authority or in lawmaking or in lobbying, and you need to advance that in those places. But ultimately, it is God's kingdom and no one else's that we live for. That's what it looks like to view all of life, including our culture, our political situation, from the finished work of the cross. This story tells us, David and Goliath, that there is an enemy worse than any army or giant, worse than your spouse or your supervisor or the president. The story tells us that there is a battle that's greater than the one that you have as a teenager with your parents, greater than the one you may be battling with sickness right now, greater than the one that all of us battle with the shortness of life. But it gives us the hope that there is an anointed one greater than the bold and believing David and a salvation better than military victory or personal prosperity. David and Goliath point to Jesus, to his cross and his ultimate victory. And the resurrection has changed it all. Like the head of Goliath tossed outside of the walls of Jerusalem, it warns Satan, sin, and death. You have lost. This city is God's. It's not your giants. It's Satan, sin, and death that have been defeated. And that gives us hope to approach any part of life. Let's pray. God of all life, we call to you, knowing that our fears and anxieties are very real, but you are greater. There is no Goliath or Caesar, or cultural change or challenge that is not subject to your purposes and your kingdom. God, forgive us for our myopia, for not seeing the world and others and ourselves from your perspective. And may the power of your spirit enable us to trust you and all that you have done and the promises you give us. In Jesus' name, amen. As Jordan plays a couple verses of Amazing Grace, I invite you to respond just reflectively and in prayer.